welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome back to another episode brought to you by Melbourne's Lockdown. Time for our team timeout. Our patient today is the colorectal module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we'll be covering today are colitis. And we'll specifically be talking about infectious colitis, pseudomembranous colitis, ischemic colitis, and diverticulitis. So let's start off by talking about colitis in general. Colitis, as you all know, is just a term for inflammation of the colon, and there is so many different causes for colitis. If you've ever seen a CT report for colitis, it will always comment on the differential diagnoses being infectious, ischemic, or malignant. And this basically has to do with the fact that colitis on a CT scan just shows thickening of the bowel wall, but doesn't give you any information about what the potential cause may be. So how might patients with colitis present? Because the main function of the colon is to reabsorb fluid or liquid, if the wall of the colon or the mucosa of the colon is damaged, then that function is lost. And so patients typically present with profuse watery diarrhea. They may also present with bloody diarrhea or loss of sort of a thick mucus layer, which could be the mucosa um, sloughing off in the case of severe colitis. Patients will also typically present with pain, which is typically lower abdominal pain, given this is a hindgut pathology. Or if patients have full thickness inflammation, they may have localized tenderness corresponding to the location of the colitis. So before we go into infectious and ischemic causes of colitis, I just want to mention a couple of the other types of colitis that I'm not going to be talking about today. So under the inflammatory umbrella, we've already talked about in other episode inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Other types of inflammatory colitis include Bechet's disease and also um, diversion colitis or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug-induced colitis. So first up, let's talk about infectious colitis. So in general, colitis can be caused by viral, bacterial, parasitic, and sexually transmitted infections. The patient's presentation may give you a hint about what the underlying infectious etiology may be. So for example, a patient with a viral colitis may present with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And this is typically an acute presentation and will resolve within 24 to 48 hours. Often in these situations, patients have had other sick contacts with a similar illness. Patients with a bacterial cause for their colitis will typically present more unwell with lower abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, and they may have a history of suspect food or recent travel. Some common viral causes of colitis include norovirus, CMV, rotavirus, adenovirus, and Norwalk virus. CMV commonly causes a colitis in immunocompromised patients, so particularly patients with inflammatory bowel disease on immunosuppressants, patients on immunosuppressants for other autoimmune diseases or transplants, or patients on steroids for other conditions who present with diarrhea, you always have to be thinking about CMV infection. These 
Conditions, though, are usually self-limiting and don't require any treatment. However, in immunocompromised patients, especially without resolving symptoms, you may need to do further tests such as stool, cultures, uh, endoscopy with biopsies, CMV, viral loads, and they also may need treatment with antivirals such as famcyclovir or gangcyclovir if they're immunocompromised. Some common bacterial causes of colitis include Campylobacter, Shigella, cholera, E. coli, salmonella, and Clostridium difficile. I'm just going to talk a little bit about these different types of infections. So Campylobacter is a gram-negative rod. It typically causes colitis in patients via a food vector, and approximately 20% of patients will have relapsing symptoms if they don't receive treatment. But in most patients, it's a self-limiting disease over about the course of a week. It's diagnosed with a stool culture, and treatment is with antibiotics, um, either erythromycin, ciprofloxacin, or doxycycline. E. coli is another bacteria that can cause colonic infection. There's different serotypes, which are known to be pathogenic and cause infections, and these include enteroinvasive, enteropathogenic, enterotoxic, or enterotoxigenic, which secrete a toxin, and enterohemorrhagic types. The different types have different serotype numbers, of which there's a wide variety of these. I'm not going to talk about them here. And hopefully it's a little bit too much detail than what we will need in the exam. The treatment of toxin-producing E. coli is typically supportive um, as antibiotics may worsen the disease. Salmonella is a gram-negative rod bacteria, and it typically infects patients through eating contaminated meat or eggs. This typically presents similar to a Campylobacter infection with bloody diarrhea and is diagnosed by a stool culture. If it's isolated on a stool culture, this can be treated with antibiotics, but in most patients, it's a self-limiting infection. Something I did not know about salmonella is that actually a subtype of salmonella called salmonella typhi is typhoid fever. And this is an infection that can make patients very sick. And you might remember the story of typhoid Mary. Basically, salmonella typhi can get into the gallbladder and live there for life and cause shedding of the bacteria, which is why patients can be contagious but well and spread the infection over the course of their lifetime. Salmonella typhi can make patients very unwell. It can cause local colitis and GI tract bleeding and can even cause perforation or peritonitis. It can also get into the lymphatic system, causing lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, bacteremia, and even meningitis. So salmonella typhi should be treated with um, a cotrimoxazole, amoxicillin mixture, but it can be antibiotic resistant. Shigella is another type of bacteria that can cause colitis. It's a gram-negative rod and is very contagious. And this bacteria causes direct damage to the um, colon through toxin effects. Again, this is usually a self-limiting infection, but patients can be treated with a third-generation cephalosporin. The next bacteria to talk about is cholera or Vibrio cholera. Thankfully, this doesn't cause much infection in Australia, but you might see it in returned travellers. And cholera causes infection by a toxin secretion that increases cyclic AMP levels in cells and causes profuse watery diarrhea and dehydration. The treatment is supportive and azithromycin. The last bacteria to talk about is Clostridium 
difficile. And this leads into the discussion about pseudomembranous colitis. Clostridium difficile is the most common noscomial cause of diarrhea. It's typically related to use of antibiotics, which kill off all of the good bacteria and allow Clostridium difficile to become pathogenic. It's a spore-forming anaerobic gram-positive bacteria and typically colonizes the gastrointestinal tract of patients via the fecal-oral route. It's resistant to gastric acid and its pathogenesis involves colonizing the colon after the normal flora is disrupted by antibiotic use, as I mentioned. Once the colonization occurs, the bacteria produce toxins, cytotoxin A, which is called enterotoxin, and cytotoxin B, which is called cytotoxin, and other types of virulence factors that are directly toxic to the clonic mucosa and cause both local and systemic inflammatory effects. The risk factors for getting Clostridium difficile infection include elderly patients, patients who are hospitalized, use of antibiotics, especially broad-spectrum ones such as clindamycin and cephalosporins, patients who are immunosuppressed, post-operative patients, patients who use PPIs, inflammatory bowel disease patients, and also use of chemotherapy drugs. Typically, these patients will present with symptoms of colitis, but they will often have profuse watery diarrhea. And they also usually have a really high inflammatory response. So they'll have really high white cell counts. They may have systemic inflammatory response symptoms such as fever, tachycardia. They'll often have abdominal pain. They can sometimes present with an ileus, toxic megacolon, which we talked about in our inflammatory bowel disease episode, and they can also present with perforation. The diagnosis is by a stool culture, which specifically looks for the C. difficile toxin in the stools. These tests can differentiate between non-toxic and toxigenic strains of C. difficile, and it does this by using PCR test for the toxin genes. An endoscopy may show evidence of pseudomembranes, and that's where this term pseudomembranous colitis comes in. So one of the things that C. difficile does is causes these raised yellow-whitish plaques on the wall of the colon. These are pseudomembranes, and they're composed of bacteria, fibrin, mucus, and neutrophils from crypt erosions. You can also biopsy the bowel in those situations as well to differentiate different forms of infection and inflammatory colitis. A CT may be helpful to diagnose colitis and it can also rule out fulminous colitis or toxic megacolon. The treatment of Clostridium difficile infection is firstly to confirm the diagnosis. Patients will need resuscitation with correction of their fluid and electrolytes. The inciting antibiotics should be stopped as soon as possible and treatment should be direct local treatment with antibiotics. So this is oral metronidazole as a first line, which is typically given as 400 milligrams TDS for 10 to 14 days. This can also be given again if there's a recurrence, but once you get an additional recurrence, you should be thinking about changing that patient to vancomycin instead. Vancomycin can be given orally as 125 to 250 milligrams QID for 10 to 14 days. And if there's a really severe case of Clostridium difficile, vancomycin can be given intravenously and it can also be given as a retention 
NMR if the patient has an ileus and you're worried about the antibiotics getting to the colon. If you have a strain that's recurrent or seems to be resistant to infection, it's good to get the infectious diseases team involved early. These patients should be placed in contact, isolation, and you should be monitoring them closely for evidence of complications such as toxic megacolon or perforation. Some adjuncts to consider are things like probiotics to try to normalize the clonic flora. And in severe refractory cases, um, sometimes cholestyramine, which is a bile acid binding agent, is given to help bind the toxin. Surgery should really be reserved for severe toxic megacolon or fulminant colitis, or if there's evidence of perforation or intractable hemorrhage. And you want to try to identify patients that are going to need surgery early before they become really unwell with their toxic or fulminant colitis. The operation of choice in that situation would be a subtotal or total abdominal colectomy with an end ileostomy. The other sexy thing in Clostridium difficile infection is fecal microbiota transplant, which is more experimental but um, could be reserved for severe resistant cases, with the concept being that you transplant a healthy microbiome to the patient to uh, basically fight off the Clostridium difficile overgrowth. To finish us off, the parasitic causes of colitis include amoebic dysentery, giardia, cryptosporidium, and schistosomiasis infections. Typically, these will present with a more mucus-type discharge. Amoebic dysentery is an infection with entamoeba histolytica, and this requires treatment with metronidazole for 10 days. Giardia lambia is a flagellated protozoa, and the cysts survive in water, so it's often picked up um, with fresh water ingestion, and it's as well treated with metronidazole for five days. Cryptosporidium is a parasitic infection commonly seen in patients with HIV. And schistosomiasis is a fluke infection, which is carried by a freshwater snail, especially in Africa. It can cause a funny um, spectrum of disease, including glomerulonephritis, CNS lesions, chronic cystitis and bladder TCC, and also a form of periportal fibrosis, which can lead to liver cirrhosis. The treatment is a medication called praziquantel. The next topic for today is diverticular disease. Diverticular disease is the presence of sac-like mucosal protrusions through the muscle wall. And we're specifically talking about diverticulum in the colon today. They're considered false diverticulum as they don't involve all of the clonic layers, just the mucosa prolapsing through the muscular layer. They're very common in patients as we get older. They're uncommon before 30 years old, but about 60% of people over the age of 60 will have diverticulum in the colon. The etiology of these outpouchings is not completely known, but there's a number of theories. They're thought to arise through weak points in the muscularis, which is where the vasa recta penetrate the circular muscle coat. The traditional theory is the pressure and colonic transit theory. This is the thought that patients with diverticular disease have prolonged transit times and therefore increased segmental pressures in the colon. 
And therefore, that due to Laplace's law, the sigmoid is the narrowest part, so it has the highest pressures, and that this is why it's more common in the sigmoid colon. It's thought to therefore correlate with low fiber intake because this increases colonic transit times. Another theory is that of neuromuscular dysfunction. The thought being that neuromuscular dysfunction of the colon causes increased pressures and that this therefore allows those outpouchings. The last theory is a theory about connective tissue with basically increased type 3 to type 1 collagen ratios leading to a weakness in that connective tissue layer which causes or predisposes patients to developing diverticulum. But really it's not completely established what the cause might be. Risk factors for the development of diverticular disease are aging, as we've already discussed, a low fiber diet, genetic factors or genetic predispositions. Right-sided colitis is more common in the Asian population and left-sided colitis more common in the Western population. Obesity and smoking are all risk factors for the development of diverticular disease. So how do these patients present? Most patients with diverticular disease or the presence of those outpouchings are completely asymptomatic. Less than 25% of patients will develop symptoms related to their diverticular disease. Specifically, this episode is talking about colitis, so diverticulitis, which is an inflammation related to the area where the diverticulum are. However, diverticular disease covers more than just diverticulitis. It also considers bleeding or diverticular bleeding, which is typically painless, diverticular strictures and diverticular fistulas, but we're not going to talk about those today. So speaking specifically about diverticulitis, what causes those outpouchings to get inflamed? Of course, it's not completely known, but there are a number of theories. The first of these is the classical theory, which is related to the concept of there being stasis, such as a fecalith or impacted stool at the opening of the diverticulum, which causes obstruction and secondary inflammation. That inflammation then impairs the mucosal protective layer of the colon wall, which can lead to translocation of bacteria and an inflammatory response. The second theory is that of microperforation. This theory is similar to the first in that you get stasis or obstruction of the diverticulum, but the thought is that this then leads to a microperforation from the pressure or from the obstruction, which is quickly contained and causes local inflammation. And the last theory, which is more of a new concept, is that of an inflammatory diverticular colitis. And this is the concept that some patients will have um, ongoing symptoms of inflammation related to diverticular disease over a long period of time, which isn't responsive to antibiotics and also explains why some studies recently have said that we could potentially treat this disorder without antibiotics. And the concept is that this is a similar picture to inflammatory bowel disease and that it may have something to do with an abnormal immune response to gut flora. So how do these patients present? They present similar to infectious colitis, except that often these patients won't have diarrhea. They'll typically have a short segment of inflammation and this will lead to pain, which as it becomes full thickness through the bowel wall will be localized, typically to the left lower quadrant. Um, and they can have signs of systemic inflammation, such as fever and high inflammatory markers. And they may be very unwell in the setting of a free perforation. 
Other unusual presentations of diverticular disease include right lower quadrant pain, which could be confused for appendicitis, and this should especially be thought about in Asian populations and can occur if the sigmoid colon is sort of flopped over to the right side of the abdomen. Diverticulitis in other segments of the colon is more rare but can occur, and clinical diagnosis is not very sensitive for diagnosing diverticulitis and cross-sectional imaging will change your diagnosis up to 40% of the time. So these patients really should be investigated with a CT scan. Diverticulitis can present in a number of ways. It can present as a segmental colitis. There can be a paracolic abscess. There can be purulent peritonitis or there can be free perforation with fecal contamination. And what I'm getting at, of course, is a classification system for diverticulitis. This is called the Hinchy classification and grades diverticulitis as grade 1, 2, 3, and 4. Grade 1 is a pericolic abscess or phlegmon. Grade 2 is a pelvic abscess. Grade 3 is generalized purulent peritonitis. And grade 4 is fecal peritonitis. So the management of diverticulitis depends on the patient's presentation. For uncomplicated diverticulitis and diverticulitis with a small pericolic abscess, usually less than two or three centimetres, these patients, at least in Australia, are typically managed with an admission to hospital, IV antibiotics, and regular reassessment until their symptoms improve. There's some evidence that diverticulitis could be managed as an outpatient with oral antibiotics, but that's not routinely done at my institution. These patients are usually admitted to hospital, given intravenous antibiotics, um, typically something like keftriaxone and metronidazole, IV fluid and electrolyte correction. There's no evidence for gut rest, so unless a patient's got symptoms of an ileus with nausea and vomiting, typically you'd allow these patients to eat and drink as tolerated. And patients are assessed daily with bloods and clinical examination to make sure that they're improving before they're discharged. I will always book these patients for a colonoscopy, which should be booked in for about six to eight weeks after their admission to rule out an underlying malignancy. The risk of this is uh, low, so a colonoscopy after an attack of diverticulitis is likely to find a malignancy in about 1 in 100 cases, um, but it's higher if there was a complicated presentation with diverticulitis. So if they have a perforation or other complication, there's up to a 10% chance of an underlying malignancy. For patients with acute diverticulitis and an abscess, if it's more than three centimetres and accessible for percutaneous drainage. Typically, these would usually be managed as per uncomplicated diverticulitis, but also with percutaneous drainage of the abscess. The management of patients with complicated diverticulitis, so patients um, who have perforated disease, is dependent on the patient's clinical picture as well as their radiological findings. So in patients who have localized gas, which doesn't appear to be free and they've got no evidence of systemic toxicity and no generalized peritonitis, you may be able to manage these patients conservatively with antibiotics, but these patients need to be watched very carefully for any clinical deterioration. Patients who have radiological or clinical evidence of free perforation with symptoms such as being very unwell or unstable with tachycardia and fevers, clinical evidence of generalized peritonitis, large volume free gas or free fluid in the abdomen, you'd be thinking that these patients would need an operation. 
The operation of choice for perforated diverticular disease is a Hartman's operation with a laparotomy, resection of the perforated segment of colon, and a end colostomy. Predictors of poor outcomes in these patients are things such as um, large volume fecal peritonitis, so Hinchy 4, patients requiring ionotropes, and patients who are very unwell with acidosis. For those patients who do get a Hartman's operation, they need a completion colonoscopy once they've recovered from the operation to rule out any underlying malignant disease um, before you consider them for a reversal of Hartman's operation. The last thing probably to talk about with diverticulitis is the indications for elective resection. It used to be very easy. So if you had five attacks of diverticulitis, so you had more than a set number of attacks within a year, then you were recommended for an operation. Nowadays, though, there's no real clear guidelines, and the decision about whether or not to perform a resection needs to be balanced against the patient and their fitness for surgery, the impact that the diverticulitis and episodes of diverticulitis are having on their life, and what their risk of developing a complication is. When counselling patients, it's important to know what the natural history is of diverticulitis. So the risk of recurrence after your first episode of diverticulitis is between 25 and 30%. After you've had two episodes of diverticulitis, there's another 25 to 30% risk of having a further episode until the fourth episode, at which point you're much more likely to keep having attacks of diverticulitis. The other thing to know is that the first attack is usually the worst. So for patients presented with perforated diverticular disease, it doesn't mean that their subsequent attacks are going to be as severe. So all of that really does need to be taken into account. So now that I've talked about colitis and diverticulitis, I thought I'd spend a little bit of time talking about ischemic colitis. This is a topic that I didn't know very much about, and I I think a lot of people get confused between acute mesenteric ischemia and ischemic colitis, but these are different entities, so I think it's worth discussing. So ischemic colitis is actually a very common cause of colitis. And it's thought to actually be a non-occlusive acute change in the colonic microvasculature, which leads to ischemia. So this is not a macrovascular problem, but a microvascular problem. And it's thought that the colitis part of this picture is due to a reperfusion injury, which causes immune cell recruitment into the damaged tissues, an inflammatory response, and then injury to the bowel mucosa. The risk factors for the development of ischemic colitis include advanced age, cardiovascular risk factors including hypertension, hyperlipidemia, coexistent coronary artery disease, and diabetes. Other potential contributing features include atrial fibrillation, COPD, smoking, and constipation. Saying that, though, there is a subset of patients that get ischemic colitis that might be younger, and causative factors that are found in this group includes people with hypercoagulable states, vascular disease, long-distance runners, and patients who are constipated. And other factors have been considered to contribute, such as use of the oral contraceptive pill, um, some other drugs, including digoxin and diuretics, um, cocaine and calcium channel blockers. 
The thing that people usually say when talking about ischemic colitis is that it commonly occurs in the watershed areas, such as the splenic flexure or the rectosigmoid junction, with the thought being that these areas have less blood supply, so are more susceptible to non-occlusive ischemia. However, the evidence shows that actually the ischemic colitis can occur in any part of the colon, from the cecum to the rectum. And actually, the descending colon and sigmoid colon are the most commonly affected areas, but right-sided colitis occurs approximately 20% of the time. Patients with ischemic colitis will present similarly to patients with colitis from infection causes. So this includes abdominal pain, diarrhea, low volume, uh, rectal bleeding or um, bloody diarrhea, and they are typically not that unwell and not that hemodynamically unstable unless they're presenting with a complication such as full wall ischemia or gangrene or perforation. The main issue with ischemic colitis is that it really is a diagnosis of exclusion in that there's no one test that can say that it definitely is ischemic colitis. So for these patients, your workup should include diagnosing the colitis with imaging, and this is typically with a CT scan, but also excluding infectious causes with stool cultures and thinking about the patient's age and their uh, medical history and their presenting complaints to make sure that um, you don't need to do other investigations to rule out things like inflammatory bowel disease or malignancy. It's a little bit contentious, but some people suggest that a colonoscopy should be done early in the course of ischemic colitis. I haven't seen this really done regularly in clinical practice, but the thought is that you can diagnose the problem um, better if you have an early biopsy. And there are some histopathological features that are consistent with ischemic colitis under the microscope. And also that it enables you to monitor the progression of the disease and ensure that it is resolving. However, saying that you can monitor patients clinically um, and with blood tests. So that may be why this isn't done routinely. The things that you might find on endoscopy with a patient with ischemic colitis ranges from just patchy mucosal edema through to superficial ulcerations, sometimes even early pseudomembranes, and all the way to uh, cyanotic mucosal nodules and deep ulcers in severe disease. The natural history of ischemic colitis is that most patients will improve with conservative management. So the treatment really is supportive management. In patients who present with severe colitis, they should be admitted to hospital. Most of these patients will be managed as per the CRISP principles with bowel rest, IV fluid and electrolyte correction. And also typically these patients will be given antibiotics. There's some evidence that it can reduce the duration of the colitis as well as protects the patient from bacterial translocation. There's no evidence that anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy will help with this pathology or prevent its occurrence in the future, but there really is limited research on this topic. Patients who are admitted to hospital with ischemic colitis should be regularly monitored for signs of deterioration. And indications for operation may include uh, gangrenous disease, fulminant colitis, development of peritonitis, evidence of perforation, um, uncontrollable hemorrhage or evidence of mucosal necrosis at endoscopy. Approximately 
10 to 17% of patients with ischemic colitis may require surgical resection of a segment of ischemic bowel. And this should be done back to well-perfused mucosa and an on-table colonoscopy may be required to delineate the extent of the mucosal involvement, which may be more um, than the serosal involvement. A decision about primary anastomosis as opposed to delayed restoration should be made depending on the patient's overall status and the surgeon's confidence regarding the vascular supply. And some patients who are very unwell may require damage control surgery and a relook or a stoma. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of First Incision. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>